This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Well, when young people think of the British monarchy these days, they could be forgiven for dismissing the institution in terms of, well, celebrity and family melodrama. Just think of the controversies surrounding Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And then, of course, there's Prince Andrew and his shady dealings with sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. And yet it was the Queen, Elizabeth II, who provided steady, reliable leadership for over seven decades. She ascended to the crown in the wake of World War II, which severely damaged Britain and the empire. And her reign has come to an end as Britain deals with the fallout from Brexit, renewed calls for Scottish independence and massive anxieties about the state of the UK. From Churchill in 1952 to Truss in 2022, all up 16 British prime ministers and 17 Australian prime ministers, a remarkable reign. David Flint is a long-time follower and admirer of the Queen. He's also chairman of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. And I started by asking David for his thoughts on the Queen's passing. Well, uh, it came as a tremendous shock. We all knew it was coming, but it seemed to be so sudden. And she has played such a significant role in Commonwealth affairs and world affairs. It is a, it is a shock, and I think that's being registered around the world. And what is also superb is the fact that so many people are recognising the great contribution she made to world affairs and her sense of service and duty. It was a remarkable reign during an era that tested British unity and strength, uh, you know, from the wake of World War II uh, right through to Brexit. And, and that really helps explain why she was so widely admired across Britain, but the Commonwealth, but also the broader West. I think you're absolutely right. She demonstrated that uh, she could offer leadership above politics. And I think in some ways it also demonstrated that one of the great advantages of the Westminster system, which does separate that role and allows that role to grow over a number of years. What's striking too, David, is that she abstained from politics in a way that some of his critics would say her son and successor Charles has found difficult to do. Yes, I think he will have no problem now, now that he's king. But uh, she certainly did abstain. She realised that that is not the role of the constitutional monarchy that was established by George III when uh, the monarchy gradually developed into its present form today. I call it uh, Mark II, Constitutional Monarchy Mark II, which distinguishes it from the monarchy from the Glorious Revolution through to George III. And there, there was an accepted political role. It disappeared when the ministers, particularly the prime minister, was no longer responsible to the king, who's now responsible to the parliament. I'm about to speak with Alexander Downer, a friend of yours, fellow monarchist and former foreign minister, and Isabel Oakeshott, a prominent British journalist. We'll be talking about Liz Truss and the massive anxieties across Britain and the sense of upheaval that's taking place right now with the high inflation rates, the labour unrest, uh, the falling pound and whatnot. 
the pace of media change. I mean, how do you think the British monarchy adapts and prospers under Charles? It will only continue in its present form if he does what I will fully expect him to do, and that is serve. The whole point of the monarchy is that it serves the people. I think the Queen demonstrated that in her thanks to the people at the time of her Platinum Jubilee when she signed that letter thanking them for their loyalty and affection. This was to all the realms too. And in it, she signed that document as your servant, Elizabeth, and that is what the monarch is. The monarch cannot survive unless the monarch is a servant of the people. And that is a really marvellous system. And what does her death mean for Australia, David? I mean, surely it will renew calls for us to jettison the constitutional monarchy and revisit the question of being a republic as we did in 1999. Now, you led the effort uh, to defeat the proposal for a republic in 1999. The calls will be renewed. What's likely to happen given the passing of the Queen? Oh, well, those movements will gradually arrive because it is their last hope. They've admitted that, and uh, I, I don't think they're going to succeed because their argument is we need to become a republic because we need an Australian as head of state. We say, and I think with very strong authority, we already have a head of state, and that is the Governor-General. We are a republic. We're a crowned republic. And what you're offering in the two models you've given us, the first model, which they offered to the convention, was really the French Fifth Republic. This is something where they failed. The two models that they offered were politicians' republics, where the politicians' powers were increased. It is their job to come up with a decent model, and I doubt if they will. That was Professor David Flint, Chairman of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. Up next, the new British Prime Minister. Well, Queen Elizabeth was a symbol of stability in a fast-changing world, and her death comes as Britain welcomes its fourth Prime Minister in six years. And as the UK faces labour unrest, an energy crisis, and a failing economy. So can the new PM, Liz Truss, pilot Britain through the stormy weather ahead? Isabel Oakeshott is international editor of Talk TV, a columnist with the UK Sun newspaper, and a biographer of former Prime Minister David Cameron and former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. And Alexander Downer is our nation's longest serving foreign minister from early 1996 to late 2007, and he served as our nation's High Commissioner to the UK. I spoke with Isabel Oakeshott and Alexander Downer several hours before the death of Queen Elizabeth, and I started by asking them just who is Liz Truss? Well, it's a very good question, isn't it? She's been in Parliament since 2010, uh, and I hadn't actually realised until her slightly unexpected ascent to the to the favourite to win the leadership that she had this extraordinarily left wing background. I mean, she does come from a very political family. 
but on the left. And then she seems to have sort of undergone a bit of a metamorphosis, as often happens with people when they get older. They see the light, uh, and now she is a proper uh, sound right-of-centre conservative. Uh, and I think she believes it. You know, this is not some kind of uh, pragmatic transition. I think the next two years are going to be truly extraordinary in British politics. She is planning a really radical set of changes. Uh, she's only got two years to do this before facing the electorate, and they're just going to go for it. So a political chameleon is how she's been widely described. Uh, Alexander Downer, does that mean it'll be difficult to predict what kind of leader she'll be? No, I don't think that at all. Um, I don't think uh, she has been a political chameleon in recent years, really. I think I mean, I've had a bit to do with her and the Australian government has, particularly the previous government, over the free trade negotiations. And our experience of Liz Truss is that she is a very hardline free market believer. Um, so when we were negotiating a free trade agreement with Liz, um, her department was putting all sorts of obstacles in the way and the tradition of EU trade negotiations was still filtering through the British civil service, but Liz Truss just completely overruled them. And so my experience of her in recent times is that she is very committed to market economics and market solutions. And although she's not remotely charismatic in the way Boris Johnson was, I'll tell you what she is, she's very tough very, very determined. Well, let's turn to her very diverse new cabinet. Let's all bear this in mind. I don't think many Australians have caught the significance of this. The PM and her deputy, they're both women, while the other three occupants of what's known as the three great offices of state, so the Chancellor of the Exchequer, what we'd call the Finance Minister, the Foreign Secretary, the Home Secretary, they're all non-white and all are very conservative. Now, this follows the most gender and racially diverse Tory leadership contest. Isabel Oakeshott, what does this tell us about British conservatism in 2022? Well, it's remarkable, isn't it? And it tells us that the British Conservative Party is well ahead of the preachy Labour Party that to date has never had a female leader or female prime minister. So this is remarkable and has happened quite rapidly, actually. Um, very much accelerated under David Cameron's administration when he made a, a real effort, uh, when he became leader of the opposition uh, way back in 2006, I think it was, or seven, uh, to, to diversify the party. You know, He promoted a very, very diverse and young and dynamic list of candidates to come in in 2010. And this is a sort of the culmination of all that work. It is worth pointing out uh, that all three of those uh, figures that you mentioned in the high offices of state are privately educated or were privately educated. 
Um, and much is being made of that on the Labour side. I mean, of course, they would do that, wouldn't they? Uh, you know, they like to, to point out um, that they are more inclusive in that sense. Uh, but I think this is a remarkable um, a shift in the way that our politics looks. And, and moreover, uh, it challenges that the notion uh, that people from those diverse backgrounds might be naturally left wing. We, we, we're going to have a very uh, right of centre chancellor in charge of our money here. Uh, and we're going to see a true tax cutting agenda. OK, and it's also the fourth ethnic minority Tory chancellor in a row and the third ethnic minority Home Secretary in a row. Fascinating. Now, let's go to PMQs in the Commons this week. This question to the Prime Minister from the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. Can I ask my right honourable friend, why does she think it is that all three female Prime Ministers have been Conservative? It is quite extraordinary, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be uh, the ability in the Labour Party to find a, uh, a female leader, or indeed a leader who doesn't come from North London. Now, that's uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss responding to the former British Prime Minister, Theresa May, in Parliament. Now, North London, of course, that's a, a reference to the metropolitan sophisticates out of touch with most working Brits. Alexander Downer. Well, it is true that um, North London is the Labor Party heartland of middle-class lefties. And Keir Starmer, the now leader of the opposition, is an MP there. I'm probably a bit different from most people nowadays. I'm an old-fashioned liberal in the sense that I believe in the equal value of all individuals, regardless of their gender or race. So I'm not terribly focused on the gender or the race of Liz Truss or the members of her cabinet. I'm much more focused on what they do. That's what matters. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May and now Liz Truss became leaders of their party. But what I would say to you is they were not chosen because they were women. They were chosen mm. because the party thought they were the right people for the job at the time they were chosen. And people like Kaby Badenoch and Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, is the equivalent of the Treasurer, um, these people are not being chosen for those positions because of their race. They're not quota people. These are people chosen because they're good, because they seem to be the best people from the available choice for the job. And I think that the Conservative Party, in a way, is making that point very strongly. No quotas. They don't have quotas. OK, but none of that disguises the fact that the new PM faces enormous challenges, not just in Britain, but how she presents the UK to the world. Isabel Oakeshott, you supported Brexit. So how do you account for the dire state of post-Brexit Britain? Oh, I mean, so many things, Tom, and you're absolutely right. You you read out, you, you listed at the beginning of this segment uh, the, the problems we face, but you only really touched on the surface. You scratched the surface of that. Of course, there's another much more human thing that's going on here, which is uh, the state of the health of our, our monarch. And that is a huge anxiety for us as a nation at a time uh, when we are facing so many other challenges. You know, we have a, a massive wave of industrial unrest. You know, the trains don't run 
we have a hose pipe ban. You're not a, uh, we, we don't even have an assured uh, water supply. Uh, so this is just quite extraordinary. It's a time also when we are paying historically high taxes, the highest tax burden in 70 years. And as for the Brexit opportunity, thus far, utterly squandered. Now, the big excuse is the pandemic. It was pretty impossible, uh, really, to make great progress on Brexit opportunities at a time when the country was going through such a historic health crisis. I would argue we made it an awful lot worse for ourselves in common with much of the rest of the developed world by shutting down so much of the economy for such long periods. We weren't quite as drastic in our approach as you were in Australia, but nonetheless, a lot of the economic and energy crisis that we're facing now is actually a hangover from the response to the pandemic. Not the pandemic itself, but the response to the pandemic. This yeah. is a lockdown cost of living crisis. So I think the new prime minister recognises that and is, is very determined to try to turn it around. But it sounds like Britain is, is, is increasingly seen as the sick man of Europe, just like in the late 1970s before Margaret Thatcher came to power. Alexander Downer, let me put this to you. Highest inflation in the G7, a falling pound, eye-watering uh, energy crisis. You've got the British uh, still dealing with the hangover of Brexit with respect to uh, Northern Ireland. You've got a UK riven by Scottish, Welsh, Irish nationalism, a woke revolution in art and culture. You've got a nasty winter for the National Health Service. You've got the ever-expanding public sector and the welfare state. That just adds to the skyrocketing debts and deficits. I feel at this point I'm a bit like Basil Fawlty after the hotel inspector reads <laughs> out the long list of complaints about the hotel and Basil says, otherwise, OK. But given all this, Alexander Downer, do you still believe that post-Brexit Britain is one of the greatest countries on earth? Uh, yeah, it obviously is. I mean, you can go through Germany with a list like that too today, right. which has mm -hmm. which has huge problems. I mean, it's just that you're um, in Australia focused much more on British news than on German or French or Italian news. But if you went through yeah. the, li uh, the list of problems in those countries, they're absolutely massive. Germany is already in yes. recession. The UK isn't quite in recession yet. So, look, I'm with Isabel. I think the all the lockdowns and the huge spending that came with the with the lockdowns, uh, we will pay. But in Australia as well, don't you worry. We will pay for that for many years to come. It has been a massive mistake, in my view, and I know that's a very unpopular view. The National Health Service, which is, you know, it's a national a nationalised industry. It has all of the problems that you have with nationalised industries, low productivity, queuing and all sorts of things. And, and the British public will not allow it to be reformed. They are completely opposed <laughs> to any reform of the National Health Service. And, of course, it's become bogged down because of the pandemic and, the, in particular, the response to the pandemic. So, you know, I think you need to get all these problems into perspective. As for Brexit, well, it's it's too early to say. We'll have to wait and see what decisions the government makes that will take advantage of the UK not being in the EU. The fact is that as a result of the pandemic, they haven't done very much. Um, Liz Truss is determined to do more. So uh, will they deregulate in ways that the EU wouldn't have allowed? Will they change the tax system? in the ways that the EU wouldn't allow. 
uh, we'll have to wait and see. But the one thing they have done is make a lot of trade agreements, um, including with our own country. And the interesting thing is Liz Truss is the minister who has done that. Yeah, sorry, I just want to come here because I'm, I'm standing looking out over the Thames, uh, looking across at the magnificent Houses of Parliament. It's a, a pretty nice day here, blue skies. And I'm thinking that despite everything, this country has so much potential. And, you know, it's so easy to list everything that's going wrong and feel that we're a basket case, but we're not. And I think there is real hope uh, that we can turn this around Germany at the moment is busy having to instruct its citizens to turn the lights out, such as their energy crisis. So we're not alone in this. You know, all over the world, countries are now paying the price for the crazed response to the pandemic. And I think Britain is well positioned to pull itself out of the mire if it goes for a low tax, high growth economic model. And that was not going to happen under Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak. It will happen under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. The question is, are voters going to give them enough time to do it or will they be out in two years' time? It sounds like you're both agreeing that the new PM has nothing to lose and everything to gain by following Milton Friedman's dictum that only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. And that's the motto that uh, prompted Margaret Thatcher to embark on her revolution. Now, of course, Liz Truss has cast herself as a great admirer of Margaret Thatcher. She regularly invoked Thatcher to win over the hearts and minds of the Tory grassroots. Listen to this week's exchange in the Commons between the new PM and the Labor leader, Keir Starmer. Is that this country will not be able to tax its way to growth. She's the fourth Tory Prime Minister in six years. The face at the top may change, but the story remains the same. There is nothing new about the Tory fantasy of trickle-down economics. Well, there's nothing new about a Labour leader who is calling for more tax rises. That's a lively exchange between the Prime Minister and the Labor leader and PMQs this week. Alexander Downer, what do you make of the fact that here's Liz Truss, apparently the new Iron Lady, but she will spend about 100 billion borrowed pounds on an energy bailout? That doesn't th- sound Thatcherite. Well, I don't know whether it would be Thatcherite or not, and then I'd, ha- I'd have to say I do have my reservations about that at uh, um, reservations about, put, well, effectively putting a ceiling on energy prices, um, particularly gas prices. I would have thought myself it made a lot more sense to spend less money by just focusing on helping people on benefits and pensioners rather than everybody in the whole country at huge expense. My problem with this borrowing, it has the potential to add to inflation And there's already a lot of inflationary pressure coming out of all the spending from the pandemic, um, as well as the increase in energy prices. So, um, you know, I I do have my reservations about that. On the other hand, the political circumstances of the time, I suppose, demand it. So if you did nothing, um, it would be politically very painful to do. And the alternative is to raise taxes to pay for it, which is what the Labor Party is proposing. The trouble with that is that if you did that, um, it would definitely push the economy into recession and discourage investment. 
So no easy answers there. Okay, back to Isabel's point, though, about the idea of the new Prime Minister embracing a broadly free market agenda. Um, The critics would respond, Isabel, and say that the 2019 landslide election, that did not give the Tories a Thatcherite mandate. And if you go back then, Boris won a landslide mainly because he appealed to many working-class constituents and so-called Labor red wall seats in the Midlands and Northern England who are hardly panting for free market capitalism, Isabel Oakshot. Well, they, they don't talk about free market capitalism around the dinner table in those constituencies. They talk about how the European Union and the structures there have deprived them of the opportunity to make a good living. So that election was a freak in a sense. It was all about getting Brexit done. And that is why the Conservative Party won all those seats in the North I think they're going to lose all of those seats. And I think this um, tax-cutting agenda that appeals so much to people like me in the Tory base um, will be heavily exploited as, quote, for the rich, for the successful, for the wealthy, uh, by the Labour Party. And there will be devastation in those seats in the North. But but let's see about that. I don't want to be unduly negative. Uh, and in terms of the um, the energy intervention that we are going to see announced today, I mean, make no mistake, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng don't like doing this. You know, they're not, they're not um, inclined to intervene in the market in this way. And uh, we see that in the um, the abandoning of the windfall tax uh, on the energy producers, which both uh, Truss and Kwarteng hated, uh, introduced by Boris, that's going to be unravelled. But the reality is, if they don't do something uh, to help on energy prices here, uh, pretty much immediately, actually, you're going to see a lot of businesses collapse. This isn't just about domestic utility bills. It is about businesses because they are getting quotes now in which their energy bills are going up by 10 times. So you've got a small business, perhaps it's a cafe, a restaurant. Normally, its annual uh, fuel bill will be a few thousand pounds. It's now in the 20s, 30s, thousands of pounds. These businesses cannot survive. And then we've got even worse economic collapse. That was British journalist Isabel Oakeshott, international editor of Talk TV, and Alexander Downer, former foreign minister and high commissioner to the UK. And just a reminder, our discussion was recorded several hours before the death of Queen Elizabeth. Up next, progressive social scientists hated it But could broken windows policing help, once again, to reduce crime rates in US cities? Well, in the 1990s, it was an idea that many thought turned New York City from being a lawless murder capital to a functioning safe city. There were some 2,000 homicides a year in 1993. But by 1997, that's within four years, there had been a 60% decline. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Now, many attributed the turnaround to a policing method known as broken windows. And we'll get to that in a moment. The critics, though, they pointed to social factors and falling unemployment levels as the real reason behind the falling murder rate. 
but Broken Windows Policing had and still has its supporters. And they're not all from New York City. Stephen Walters hails from Baltimore, and he argues that the benefits of a Broken Windows approach to crime are clear, and cities like his should use it to stop the spiral of urban decay. Stephen is the chief economist at the Maryland Public Policy Institute, and he's author of Boomtowns, Restoring the Urban American Dream. Hi, Steve. Hello. Thanks for having me in. Well, it's great to have you on the program. Now, this Broken Windows thesis, it's the work of social scientists, the distinguished James Q. Wilson, George Keller. Now, in 1982, they published an article in the Atlantic magazine, groundbreaking piece. Tell us about the concept. What is Broken Windows Theory? Well, it's really very simple. It's uh, built built on the uh, assessment that uh, some signs of public disorder will breed more disorder. And so that uh, to to, uh, create a virtuous cycle of greater uh, uh, civic order and greater public safety, what you you do is you start um, fixing the broken windows, so to speak. Now, the key thing about broken windows theory is that it's been widely misunderstood and misinterpreted. It's a little bit like, um, you know, if you have a great recipe and you, uh, you orally convey the recipe to a friend and then that friend conveys it to another, uh, by the time you're at the end of the line of, of communication here, some of the ingredients will be forgotten and others will be changed <laughs> and so forth. And, and the recipe may not work. Yes. I, I think that's what happened to Broken Windows Policing after it was it became very successful in New York and then it was transplanted. And uh, Baltimore, for example, hired some New York cops to come down and, and implement it and so forth. And, and it just wasn't done very well in a lot of other cities. I guess the greatest misconception about broken windows theory and this, uh, you know, idea that signs of disorder lead to further disorder is that you've, you've got to do something called zero tolerance policing. And that's mm-hmm. just un- completely incorrect. And that's not what uh, Wilson and Kelling proposed. The key phrase that got lost in um, implementing broken windows policing was that it is a negotiated sense of order in a community. And, and so that keyword negotiated meant it, it really was very consistent with what ultimately became known as community policing. Uh, law enforcement officials would go into a community, they'd talk to people and they'd ask, what signs of disorder do you want um, either eradicated or moved out? And, and, and what kinds of order are you comfortable with? So it could mm. really literally be done on a block by block basis. You could say, well, you know, if somebody's sleeping on the bus stop bench, uh, we don't want that. We, but if you're sleeping in, in uh, you know, in, in an alley down the block, well, that's okay. We don't want to harass that person. Okay. So there's been there's been a misunderstanding of this thesis of the Wilson Keller broken windows work. It, it has been described as zero uh, tolerance policing, but you're saying that that's not an accurate description. Not at all. I mean, whenever I hear that, it's uh, you know fingernails on a blackboard for me. Um, it's <laughs> there's a lot of tolerance in uh, broken windows uh, policing and broken windows theory. Like I say, you you want to negotiate with the community. You want community engagement to define what the rules are in, in each particular neighborhood. And, and once the community feels engaged in this way, the community, you know, it does create a virtuous cycle in that the community mm. starts looking out their window and saying, well, that's, that's not right. Now I can, now I can call the, the local uh, uh, police officer and, and point out what's happening and, and, and things can happen uh, that, that reinforce uh, civic culture and, and, and ensure greater uh, public safety um, it is emphatically not 
the cops uh, going in and, and rousting people uh, for no particular reason, and certainly not uh, consistent with the idea that cops should do things without the, the consent of the governed. Uh, there has to be this negotiated sense of of order uh, for this to work, and 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 that's what the, uh, Kelling and, and Wilson found out uh, as as they did their research for that article. And it was this this thesis is a classic case of where public policy scholarship is so important because it can help policymakers put in what the policymakers in the political class think are sound policy. Now, Rudy Giuliani, he was the New York mayor in the mid-1990s. Now, he put into practice essentially the broken windows theory uh, and he took it up with gusto, right? And the results were extraordinary. Tell us more. Yes. The, uh, the, the police chief that Rudy Giuliani hired was uh, down from Boston. Bill Bratton had been uh, a cop in Boston, and he'd, he'd started to, to work on this idea that, that uh, even on a block-by-block level, you needed to talk to residents and find out what, what bothered them. And, and then you needed to work on those small symptoms of disorder, and then they'd get busy creating this virtuous cycle. So he came down and he worked in the, as the subway uh, police chief for a while, and he did things like... Um, citing turnstile jumpers and eliminating graffiti. And and then more people started riding the subway because they felt safer. And then as more people were on the subway, uh, it became harder for bad people to do bad things on the subway, like like mug people or or do things like that. So, So it wasn't just the cops doing stuff here. It was the cops cooperating with people in ways that led them to do more to to police uh, public spaces and and you know if if things get really bad if if there's a lot of disorder out there people opt out they they flee neighborhoods they stop paying attention they close their windows and their blinds at night and they don't pay attention to noises that they hear or or, or so forth. So it really is important to maintain the sense of, of community engagement. And, and uh, Wilson and Kelling were very careful about that throughout their work. A lot of that has been forgotten over the years. And like I say, the recipe has been misapplied in a, in a variety of other cities. Um, in, in Baltimore, when we when we started doing zero tolerance policing, arrest rates went, went through the roof, but people didn't feel much safer and in fact felt like they were less likely to cooperate with the police in those years um, and and we, we've been paying the consequences ever since because now people in, in Baltimore, anyway, people tend to look at at the police as uh, part of the problem rather than part of the solution, and that just doesn't work. Yeah, the crime rates came down dramatically during a short period of time under Giuliani, no question about that, in New York. But the critics would say that New York wasn't the only city where serious crime was reduced, and they say falling levels of unemployment could account for the drop. What, and, and let's be frank, there was a boom time in the 1990s. What do you make of that argument? Well, it, it's true that crime rates uh, fell generally during this period. In in no place did they fall as dramatically as they did in New York. So so again, it's a multivariate world. There are always a lot of factors explaining something. It's, it's not one factor that explains everything. Uh, better economic conditions contributed in some ways to uh, reduce, reduce crime rates, but but more efficient policing contributed mightily, not just in New York, but in these other places. The research on this is really hard to do, and, and it's really easy to sort of fabricate advocacy work as research because you could you could look at cities that were doing zero tolerance policing, for example, and you can say, well, um, that I'm going to call that broken windows policing because it, it it suits my my priors about the way I want the research to come out. Um, so, you know, the research on this is a little bit um, difficult to interpret, but uh, clearly there was a contributing 
uh, momentum to uh, not just in New York, but in a lot of other cities, once we started looking at policing again as something that could be a force for good and something that could that could enhance public safety. Um, it, uh, on the economy and, and so forth, right now, the U.S. unemployment rate is at a historically low level, 3.5 percent. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of major cities in the United States that are experiencing rapidly rising crime rates, and, and, and Baltimore is a particular example of that. Well, is, is, that, is that linked to this idea of defunding the police? Well, uh, not so much defunding, but depolicing. Uh, mm. Baltimore's mm. police budget has been growing, but most of the money has been going to uh, defray um, pension costs and, and certain other kinds of uh, things. We're, we are actually doing much, much less policing in, in these recent years than we had previously. Um, and it, it's really a result of this uh, sort of, uh, I guess people would like it to be known as progressive approach to crime. It's not mm. progressive if it's not working, in, in my view, and this is emphatically not working. So we've had a progressive prosecutor in the city for the last seven plus years. And on her watch, compared to the previous seven years... Marilyn Mosby? Yes, she she, she just did lose her primary, so she won't, yes. she'll only have a few more months in office. And she's not alone, by the way. The, the San Francisco left-wing uh, counterpart, she lost her post in recent elections too, correct? That's right. And, and these are deep blue, very progressive cities, but, but progressives mm. have had enough. Uh, with the lack of public safety, and they understand that the that the crime is disproportionately affecting people that uh, are, are at the margins of society. So you know, it, it we we've got a booming national economy here, and yes. and crime is rising at the same pace. And and really, I think uh, again, it's a multivariate world. There's a lot of variables at work here, but one of the variables that's having a a, a damaging impact on public safety has been. Uh, again, depolicing. Even even though we may be spending more money on some police forces, uh, we're we're not spe- we're not uh, increasing the effort to to police the problem, and we're doing it in the wrong way. We've walked away from broken windows policing, and and we're we're tolerating a lot of disorder that will simply breed more disorder, and and obviously is in places like Baltimore. And gun violence uh, is obviously pretty high. Uh, what's the position in Baltimore about gun control? Well, Maryland and Baltimore are are, uh, two of the most aggressive uh, jurisdictions you can name in terms of gun control. It's illegal for anybody under the age of 21 in the state of Maryland to own a gun. Uh, We have a very restrictive conceal and carry uh, law, Uh, but there are a lot of guns here and and they are frequently used. And and one of the great things that uh, the Bratton, Giuliani, uh, Broken Windows era did in New York was there's there's gun control and there's uh, or I guess there, I should say there's gun purchase control and then there's gun use control, and uh, in broken windows uh, under a certain standard of law it, it was possible to uh, stop, question, and frisk people that were engaging in suspicious behavior, maybe standing on a on a drug corner a well known drug corner and 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 uh, so forth. If you if you if you stopped a person in, engaged in suspicious activity and you questioned them and you had reason to believe that uh, they may be carrying a gun, you could then frisk them. And, and if they were carrying an illegal gun, they actually uh, uh, paid a penalty for that. Uh, what that did, once once stop, question, and frisk was implemented as part of this uh, policing program, it just became too risky if you were a bad guy to be carrying a gun around. And so there, therefore, it became much less likely that you were going to use a gun uh, in an act of violence. And, and so, as you noted earlier, uh, the, the homicide rates in, in New York were, were 
enormously reduced mm. and, and many, many thousands of lives were saved as a result of this uh, stop, question and frisk policy. But gradually, uh, you know, the, the policy, again, the recipe was was misconstrued and um, it was it was used too often and, and it became unpopular. And eventually uh, uh, progressive New York walked away from it. That's led to increasing crime rates in, in, uh, in New York lately. Yeah, those social scientists, uh, James Q. Wilson and George Keller, must have felt a sense of intellectual vindication when they saw Giuliani put in place their ideas because it obviously had a huge impact on lowering crime rates. But rampant crime, I mean, obviously, you know, talking about 2022, we've gone backwards here in the United States. It can have a huge impact on a city's viability. Take us through the, the economic cascade that happens when, you know, citizens no longer feel safe. Yeah, Baltimore is a great case study of exactly how uh, badly things can go economically when they start going uh, badly in terms of public safety and crime. So we've been losing population for decades in Baltimore. It started to accelerate since the, just since the 2020 census. Uh, the, the latest estimates are that we've been losing another 600 residents per month uh, fleeing the city. Oh. That that leads to uh, eventually that will lead to a fiscal crisis for the city. Population yeah. loss means that there's a loss of taxpayers, and a lot of the city's mm. uh, finances, a lot of our costs are fixed. I mean, the, the number of pensioners, the num- number of streets that have to be maintained, and lights that turned on, and so forth. Those costs are fixed, but the number of taxpayers that have to pay those costs is dwindling. So the remaining taxpayers are going to be asked to bear a larger burden and they're going to get frustrated and flight is going to accelerate. In the United States, we saw what can happen here with Detroit. Um, Detroit was first uh, to to see this kind of flight problem lead to Mm -hmm, municipal bankruptcy. mm -hmm. And uh, cities like Baltimore are headed in that direction. But more broadly, aside from just the city government's financial crisis that's coming, um, it, it drastically restricts the, the amount of economic opportunity that's available to the citizens remaining in the in the city. Jobs, job flight follows population flight. Uh, investment follows uh, population flight. So there's a reduced uh, stock of, of uh, tools and physical capital that we need to, to be productive and prosper. Fewer jobs, lower paying jobs. So we get into this cycle of, of decline and uh, it does not end well, as Detroit has shown. Uh, uh, yeah, and, sure. Uh, but I mean, can you look on the bright side and say that at least these cities, progressive left-wing prosecutors, you know, we, we, we mentioned Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, but the San Francisco counterpart, I'm sure there are others, they've been losing their jobs in recent elections. So isn't there a correction underway? I think you're right. I think there is a correction underway. And, and frankly, this this problem belongs to progressives in, in the sense that only progressives can look at policing again and say, yeah, we, you know, we really need to get back to fundamentals here and we really need to get back mm-hmm. to community policing, broken windows policing, and, and we need to restore public order. Um, you know, conservatives and, and, and those from the center or the right really, in, there's so much um, leftward tilt to the political cultures in cities like San Francisco or Baltimore that really, you know, it's going to have to come from them. Uh, the, the population of, of people on the right or in the center in, in these cities is trivially small. They're not going to move politics. But when you see uh, people like Marilyn Mosby losing her primary, actually finished mm. third in her Democratic primary, and when you see recall elections in San Francisco, yeah, I, this this is a sign of a correction, and it's a hopeful sign. And, and we can just hope that uh, more 
quality social science research gets done so that we take a hard look at, at some of the narratives that have been prevailing about policing and, and crime, and, and we get back to some of the strategies that have been so successful in the past. Steve, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Stephen Walters. He's Chief Economist at the Maryland Public Policy Institute and author of Boomtowns, Restoring the Urban American Dream. Well, my next guest was born and raised in China. Some question her English accent, almost suspiciously posh, given that she didn't even speak a word of the language until she was 10 years old. Before the pandemic, she visited China regularly. She studied at Oxford University and now works at the heart of the Western establishment. A model Chinese communist shill? Well, Cindy Yu recently wrote a spectator column about the matter, and I recently asked Cindy, tongue-in-cheek, whether she is ideally placed to advance the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. Well, I think I am, actually, um, for all the reasons that you listed just now, and now listeners can hear this suspiciously posh English accent, but I didn't speak English until I was 10. So this is completely, you know, something that I've picked up here. My first language is Mandarin. I still speak and read it. And I went to Oxford University, so I've had a British education, but I'm very much in touch with my Chinese side, you could say, um, and my podcast is trying to basically explain the Chinese way of thinking, looking at things, the Chinese government's way of looking at things. So if anyone is ideally placed to, you know, subtly <laughs> advance Beijing's agenda within the British establishment, it's me. And of, of course, writing this column is the perfect double bluff. <laughs> <laughs> well, the political atmosphere towards China in Australia, as you probably know, it's very much like Britain. Indeed, many parts of the world, that attitude has has really soured significantly in recent times. Tell us about the British experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, when David Cameron and George Osborne uh, came into government in 2010, they started what's known as the golden era with China. They wanted to be China's best friend in the West. Since they left, uh, you know, in 2016, Cameron left because of Brexit. We've really gone 180 on China. Boris Johnson was relatively friendly, but Liz Truss, she is very, very hard on China. And I, I want to avoid using words like hawk and shill here, but they are shorthands for what we're talking about, basically. Uh, she has privately said that she believes that China is committing genocide in Xinjiang, and she has hinted that she's going to declare that. Um, my column mainly is about her actions in the Foreign Office, where she's defunding China experts because she thinks that they're shills, basically, that they're too cosy with Beijing. And I, I basically examine her evidence for that. And I don't, I find it quite lacking. So I think the, 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 my argument is summed up by Professor Rana Mitter from Oxford's uh, one sentence. He says that we've gone from complacency to panic without the intervening stage of knowledge. And that's, I think, basically what's happened in, in the UK over the last 12 years. Yeah, Oxford's Rana Mita, past guest on Between the Lines, and he's the PhD thesis supervisor for our former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, uh, but I digress. Now, you also argue that, quote, calling someone a shill means you don't need to engage with their arguments. And it reminds me, Cindy, of a famous quote by a liberal anti-communist at the height of the Cold War, uh, Sidney Hook. 
um, before you impugn someone's motives, answer their arguments. And we're missing that nuanced tone in the debate on China, aren't we? That is exactly right. That is exactly right. Because by questioning someone's impartiality, questioning their credibility or their, even their loyalty that they even be made, taking money from the uh, other side, you, it means that you don't have to engage with their arguments at all because, <laughs> of course, they would say that. <laughs> They're being paid for by the other side. But that's a problem because <laughs> is there something wrong with their argument? Are there something wrong with their facts? Um, and my column is tongue-in-cheek, but I have been, you know, I have had my credibility questioned um, and I continue mm. to occasionally have that, uh, but I'm, I'm only a c- c- occasional casualty. There are far greater, far more expert people on China who are really being sidelined because, you know, their arguments are not being listened to, but because they're being written off as unbelievable. Yes, but the cold, hard reality, Cindy, and you don't deny this in your column, I mean, China in recent times, mainly under the leadership of Xi Jinping, China has converted its significant economic assets into military assets, and as a consequence, China is expanding its reach and influence around the region, even the world. So your critics listening in might say, aren't people and their leaders entitled to feel far more anxious about the China threat today than, say, a decade ago? Yeah, absolutely. China has changed um, in the last decade too. I mean, President Xi Jinping is one of the most assertive Chinese presidents we've seen in basically the last uh, half a century, perhaps. He's got his legacy. He's out to build it when he cracks down on Hong Kong, when he cracks down on Xinjiang, and he's got his sights set on Taiwan. None of that can be denied. Um, and then you look at zero COVID, which is making a lot of Chinese people's lives a living hell. And we mm. must scrutinize that. We must uh, try to break that down, try to understand it, report it for people like me, report it in the West, because often Western reporting is more <laughs> clear and objective on this kind of stuff than, for obvious reasons, Chinese reporting. So that all yes. must be done. And people are right to feel anxious about the challenge from China. But the problem is that's exactly why we need experts. You know, Tom, Gorbachev died. And there were people in the UK at the time who could identify Gorbachev as someone we could do business with. Who in the Chinese Communist Party can we do businesses with? Who are the experts we need to tell us that? We're not going to be able to find out if we keep defunding them because we're worried about the communist infiltration. And and you quote Steve Bannon, I'd forgotten about this, Cindy, Uh, the West should be more concerned about Beijing than Moscow, but you also make the point that these genuine anxieties about the China threat make it, quote, even more important to understand China properly, which is different from empathising or excusing. And this reminds me of something that Henry Kissinger once said, that sometimes we need to put ourselves in our opponent's shoes and look at the world from their vantage point. Sydney. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and so, you know, when we when we scratch our heads and wonder why has Hong Kong freedom been taken away or what does China exactly want from Taiwan or why, why are the Uyghurs so in the firing line, those questions go nowhere if you can't see mm. what Beijing is seeing. Um, and, you know, I think it would be optimistic to think that we can change China's way of doing things in, inside the country, but we can at least make sure that we keep the peace by protecting rights wherever possible, by understanding the Chinese way of looking at things, and then by knowing if we want to hurt China, where to, how to go about it. And that's the important thing. But would you apply your same sound logic to discussions about Russia today? Because all the available evidence indicates that the Western media 
they hardly publish or broadcast views and articles that just try to understand Russia's strategic sensitivities in the near abroad. See, if you're a columnist and you wrote an op-ed that blamed the West for the Ukraine crisis, say, blame NATO expansion, and he supported a negotiated settlement which essentially would legitimise some of Putin's land gains, people would denounce you as a Putin apologist or a Kremlin stooge. So could you apply your logic about China to Russia? Well, Tom, it's a great question. I'm not a Russia expert, and I haven't heard any Russian experts who I truly rate um, saying that kind of thing. Um, I think that you know, my test would be, are you capable of criticizing Moscow, generally speaking? And if so, why on this instance do you think that they have a case? Now, I haven't seen a convincing case for that. But I think it would be helpful to understand why Moscow and why Putin is doing what they're doing, because maybe we mm. would have seen the invasion coming before February. Mm. You know, I don't think people realize the security concerns that he had there, or the megalomania, whatever it is. But clearly, the West doesn't understand Russia. And that's we were seeing the very real impact of that at the moment. How do you think a Prime Minister Liz Truss will define her government's China policy? Well, so I've, I've already called her very hard on China. Um, as I've mentioned, that she would um, likely declare genocide that is happening in China. That would be very intriguing thing to say, actually, because uh, no world leader has really declared it yet. And so what does that mean for trade with China? Because can you really do trade with a genocidal regime? It does seem to be beyond the pale. And that is why diplomatically, so far, world leaders have refrained from doing that. Um, So it would be very interesting to see whether or not she puts her money where her mouth is. I, I hope you know, the point I'm making in the column is that regardless of what your position on China, you can be as hard as you want, but you need to know and understand the country because without that expertise, it's not hawkishness. It's just a shot in the dark. You're just punching around everywhere, even though you don't know what you're doing. That was Cindy Yu, a columnist at the UK Spectator and host of the Chinese Whispers podcast. Well, that's the show. And if you'd like to hear past episodes of Between the Lines, including my recent exchanges with former Prime Minister John Howard, Liberal Senator Jacinta Nambajimba Price, and Singaporean intellectual Kishore Mabulbani, they're all available online. You can just subscribe to the podcasts for free. Details on the homepage or just scroll back through your recent podcast feeds. I'm Tom Switzer. Till next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.